In this episode, our conversation includes sensitive topics such as eating disorders that may be triggering. We encourage you to listen with care, and if you need to sit this one out, we understand. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Misfits and Mystics podcast, where we have conversations intersecting faith, mental health, artistry, and social justice. I'm so pumped for this episode because this week we have one of my dear friends, Kathy, to share her knowledge and experience as a recreation therapist. We also dive into her personal mental health journey and how that's informing her work and advocacy to break down stigmas, cultivate safe spaces, and, you know, just having necessary conversations um, to help support people through their recovery or just developing their overall Um, sense of being. I'm personally so inspired and encouraged by the work that she does, her passion, her generosity, her creativity. Kathy's amazing and I'm grateful that she took the time out to drop some knowledge and share her story. So get cozy, but not too cozy because as you know, we always keep it real on the podcast. Enjoy! a very special guest, my friend Kathy. She's actually my best friend that I've had the privilege and honor to know for several years now. And Kathy is currently a recreation therapist at a treatment center, and she's pursuing her master's in social work. And so obviously she's a huge advocate for mental health, breaking down the stigmas, Um, She also has her own unique story uh, and journey with mental health, which we'll get into later. But aside from that, um, she's a really great friend, a really good person. And I'm excited to have you on the podcast, Kathy. Super grateful to have you. How are you? Hi, Abra. Thank you. I'm excited, too. Um, I'm doing good. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Um, so (laughs) I guess to give the listeners a little background, um, about why you're here, how we met, um, it's actually kind of funny how we met. We met at a, (laughs) at a Denny's, (laughs) um, and we went to the same university. So, but I didn't know you existed. And then, uh, a mutual friend at the time was like, come to Denny's, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you were there, and the funny thing is, is I was like, I don't really, I wasn't really in the mood to meet new friends that day. (laughs) (laughs) And then we just got to talking about several things, um, a lot of which, a lot of the things we were talking about, um, funny enough, is things that we talk a lot about on the <laughs> podcast <laughs> with like mental health and um, faith and spirituality and um, what turned, what started off as a very awkward day turned into a very beautiful day yeah. um, where I got to meet my best friend and it's awesome. So um, yeah. If you want to just give us a little background of like who you are, what you do, um, all that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, sure. Um, so, I mean, you kind of already touched on it, but um, right now I work at a treatment center um, working with adolescents and adults uh, with mental illness, you know, eating disorders, substance abuse, um, self-harm. So just kind of a variety of uh, struggles. Um, so in my job as a recreation therapist, we use um, like activities, you know, kind of helping people to reconnect with like a leisure practice that's healthy for them and um, kind of reintroduce some fun. <laughs> so a lot of times that's something that is lost um, when you're dealing with any kind of like mental illness. Uh, leisure time becomes you know, a time to maybe use behaviors or maybe we just don't even know what to do during that time. So that's kind of where I come in. Um, so we do some education around that. Um, and then we have outings. We uh, kind of just make some time and space to practice leisure, games, arts and crafts, outings, I think I said. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I'm doing. I also work part-time at a special recreation association. So I work um, with people with disabilities, kids and adults. Um, sometimes uh, I do special Olympics programs. So I work um, basketball and volleyball have been the most recent that I've done. Um, and that is also kind of recreation therapy. Um, so just in a different way. So helping people to learn more and grow in their skills relating to recreation and uh, socialization. I work a lot with people with autism. So um, part of that is like, how do we build friendships? How do we, um, you know, have fun, meet new friends, stuff like that. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And what made you want to pursue something like this? Because I feel like when we think about mental health care or um, even working uh, with people with disabilities, um, I feel like rec therapy isn't the first thing that comes to people's mind when it comes to, you know, what we can do to aid in people's recovery or development. And so what kind of made you go into this field? Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question. Um, I, I kind of stumbled upon recreation therapy. And if you talk to recreation therapists, it's kind of a story that a lot of us share. I started out um, studying uh, special education. So I, you know, went into college thinking that I wanted to be a special ed teacher. Um, but as I went through, you know, the courses, I realized I didn't want to be in a classroom setting. And I also knew that I, I wanted to work in mental health. I had been struggling myself and I had, you know, good number of friends that were struggling. Um, but I didn't know how to go about that. So I learned about recreation therapy and I learned how it can kind of, you know, you can work with a lot of different population so I can continue to work with people with disabilities and then also, you know, incorporating mental health. And I thought that would be a good step for me. Um, 
before going into my master's. And um, I wasn't sure at the time that I'd be able to handle um, working in mental health. So it was kind of a good transition um, was going into, into rec therapy. And I think that I learned, as I learned more about it, the more I saw the benefits of it. Yeah. 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 And so what are you finding are some of the benefits to rec therapy and how are you seeing it help people? Sure. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll start with the treatment center that I work at. Um, cause I, I think that I see the most change and growth, uh, just also because I work full time there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I get to work with a lot of different people. And I think that a lot, they, you know, they come in completely disconnected from any kind of um, healthy leisure. Uh, you know, when I, when I talk to them, when they first come in, a lot of times they can't really name anything that they enjoy doing. Um, or, it's like, you know, 15 years ago, you know, I was, I did all of these things, but now I have no interest or, you know, whenever I'm free, that's when I, you know, use substances or that's when, you know, different things show up. Um, and so even just making an hour, you know, our groups are an hour long, spending an hour um, doing something that maybe they haven't had a chance to do anytime recently (laughs) um, can be interesting for them. They go in maybe not thinking that they are going to like it. And then as we go, they realize, hey, maybe this is something that can help me in my mental health. Um, You know, when I'm wanting to use substances or something like what are some options that I can, you know, kind of have in my back pocket um, or you know, incorporating leisure, I guess, like, um, more frequently can help to um, prevent some of those urges from coming up um, also. So, so I've seen kind of just that and like, gaining the skills and gaining the knowledge of some of the things that they can, they can try. Um, And then, you know, we do outings into the community. And I think that one um, is really cool because, you know, even the other day I, I, we went out to five below. It's just a, you know, a a store. And one of the residents told me that this was the first time that they went on, you know, went out into public and did something fun when they were sober. Uh, And that this was kind of like a big moment for them. And I think that that's kind of overlooked sometimes. Um, Same with karaoke. A lot of times we do karaoke and it's just a fun experience. And then, you know, I hear from them later, this is the first time I've done this sober or the first time I've I've, um, done this with a clearer mind. So it's, it's cool to see that. I think people really enjoy seeing what they can do when they're out of their, you know, when they, when they're not using those behaviors. Yeah. That's super powerful. I think because even 
as someone my as myself who has struggled with uh like mental illness um and finding that uh the engaging in like destructive behaviors but sometimes they're coupled with some of those fun like leisure activities like you were saying like karaoke or you know simple things like going to the store um but there is like a difference in reef like finding joy in those activities without it being paired with the the urge to you know be destructive with that joy Mm-hmm. And so I think it's um, I think it's beautiful that uh, people are given that um, opportunity to explore what leisure can do because mm-hmm. um, I feel like it's so overlooked because it's something so um, normalized in our way of life that we don't think about how that impacts our well-being and our um mental health you know (laughs) oh yeah Um, absolutely that makes sense yeah yeah I think that um oh sorry no go ahead (laughs) um yeah I mean kind of what you were saying uh, too you know I think that rec therapy one most people have not heard of it you know when you think of a treatment center or a mental health, you, you traditionally, I think, think of, you know, traditional talk therapy. So like psychotherapy, um, or even if we, if we kind of venture into the expressive therapies, a lot of times people think of art therapy. Um, but yes, recreation therapy is not very well known. Um, and a lot of times I'm met with, oh, so you just play games all day. <laughs> and it's like, well, Yes and no, you know, um, and trying to kind of show the benefits there. It's interesting. Yeah. Would you say that rec therapy uh, is common in most like residential treatment centers or even like in hospitals that have a psych unit? Um. Kind of. Uh, I I don't think it's as common as it, you know, could be or (laughs) I think needs to be. Um, A lot of times, you know, the activities that they have um, either in, you know, in hospitals and stuff like that tend to be done by um, people who do not have a rec therapy degree or certification. And, you know, those are very important to do. And they're still, they're going to be missing some of that, like training in how to relate those um, leisure activities to recovery. So I don't know if that makes sense, but um, you know, they have activities and they have some opportunities, but there's also not as much of that, like processing or um, connection with mental health. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. I mean, because, you know, when I was in the hospital, I do recall uh, that there was a time allotted every day for leisure activity, and it was led by someone. And I'm not sure if that person actually was a rec therapist or if they were just someone who had some type of uh 
psych, you know, training that was just incorporating the leisure activity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, because I don't, I, it, it was one of those things that was kind of optional. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't recall much, you know, about how we were like relating the activity back to recovery as more as it being like a way to keep us all busy. Right, right. <laughs> um, because, you know, when you're in the hospital all day, you can, it can get a little um, cathartic, I guess. So, you know, you want to try to create some sort of normalcy in your day. Um, so I could totally see um, them like wanting to incorporate activity to sort of keep us out of our heads, you know, for a little while and also cultivate some sort of community, you know, and socialization. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And do you, I, I guess with that, is it, would you, would you say that there are not a lot of opportunities for people to get that leisure edu- education outside of, you know, contained spaces like hospitals or treatment centers, um, you know, because it seems like, oh, the only time we're going to get introduced to, like, rec therapy is if the person it has done something to to warrant them to be placed in a facility or in a hospital. Uh, but what about the community at large, you know? Sure. Um that's a good question. Um, I think overall, unfortunately, the in the majority of cases, yes, um, you know, in hospitals, residential centers, the, that's kind of where most people are introduced to recreation therapy. Um, you know, whether that's mental illness, which is kind of what I deal with, but uh, rec therapy is also kind of you can you can work in other facilities and other like populations. Um, so you can work with people with physical disabilities. You can work with people, um, you know, the geriatric population. But even still, um, I mean, you're working kind of within some sort of institution or program. There are more community-based settings for recreation therapy, and that's more like my special recreation association that's considered community Um, based rec therapy. So um, they're not like admitted anywhere. It's just, you know, kind of like a typical if, if, you know, park districts and um, like recreation centers through the community, um, that's kind of, that's exactly what it is. Uh, But with a focus on people with disabilities. So I don't know if that really answers your question. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, Yeah, I think in a perfect world, like kind of like how we are able to scope out uh, therapists, like traditional talk therapy, you can, you know, pick a therapist, go to their office and engage in like the therapeutic process with them. Um, Is it, would you say that eventually, like as rec therapy gets more visibility that we could you know, move more into that where, you know, you work, can work one-on-one with someone 
um, outside of, you know, an institution? Or do you think that it's best to keep it like communal, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think ideally that would be a really great option. And I I honestly don't know if that, maybe that does exist (laughs) somewhere. Um, I'm just not really familiar with it. But I think, you know, leisure and recreation are really important to everyone, um, whether or not they, you have like a disability or um, a mental illness or anything like that. I think, you know, it can be really helpful to just learn about and to experience and kind of learn more of how it can benefit. You know, there's there's park districts, there's um, recreation activities that you can you can go to, but there's not as much of an opportunity unless you are in, you know, a hospital setting or something like that um, to kind of gain that knowledge. So I think that would be a really cool um, kind of intervention if we can expand it more. I think that would be great. Yeah, for sure. What are some of the challenges you face day to day, you know, at work? (laughs) Um, uh, so I, I tend, I'm working in a place that, um, there are kind of significant challenges, you know, both for the resident and then also just kind of, you know, there's a lot of people on each of the, um, you know, around campus, there's, there's a lot of people. Um, we have different like lodges or like units, I guess, um, where there's 35 people, um, for each one. Um, and then, you know, some of those are adolescents. And when you think about it, 35 adolescents in one place, all with, you know, varying mental health and behavioral disorders, um, it can be a lot, uh, you know, for them. And it's, it's a lot to manage anyway. Um, and so I think that sometimes will come out in ways that, you know, aren't ideal, (laughs) Um, but at the same time, you know, that's how they've dealt with these feelings in the past. And so it's kind of like navigating that for them, uh, helping them to find new skills and things like that. But we, we um, see a lot of behavioral acting out. Um, so that, that can be difficult. Um, and obviously, we want to help as much as we can and, you know, help them with those skills. But that can be difficult. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, also just with that many people, I don't feel like I have as much opportunity to, to spend as much time as I'd like to, you know, with each resident. Um, I think that they can gain a lot from rec therapy. Um, but you know, with hundred some people, it's, it's hard to, (laughs) meet those needs all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's, there's uh, some challenges there too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's, there's a combination of so many things when dealing with people in recovery. Um, so there's not just like one component that's a fix all, but the combination of all the things that are provided for them to hopefully get better. Um, So yeah, I could totally see that. Um, 
But on the flip side to that, like, what are some of the most like rewarding experiences that you've encountered with your residents? So I kind of mentioned it earlier, but I love hearing kind of the, I don't know, the light bulb moment Um, sometimes where, you know, somebody will say, this is the first time I've laughed in six months. Um, This is the first time that I've, you know, felt good at something. So I think that that's really powerful and something that I find rewarding. Um, I, I love getting to know everyone because, I mean, uh, the people that I work with are some of the most creative and kind and smart people I've ever met. And I love being even just like a little part of their journey and being able to kind of walk alongside them and see their growth and see all of the amazing changes that they're making. Yeah, that's great. I Yeah, I mean, I would imagine it takes a lot of <laughs> creativity within what you do. And I know that um, you and I have talked about how there's also like dance there, dance and movement therapy incorporated where you are mm-hmm. and like the seeing um, how those things like correlate with what you do. And um, I mean, dealing with the difficulties that people face, I think calls for creative minds Mm -hmm. (laughs) and even I think people assume that if you're not um in the arts that you're not creative um which I totally disagree with because I'm always in awe of like watching you um come up with different strategies and different ideas to incorporate into your work and how uh just creative, you know, it really is um, to where I'm like the average, I'm not sure the average mind could just like think of that, you know? (laughs) Um, So quickly or so um, with, with passion and enthusiasm. And it obviously comes from a place of um, care, you know, for the people that you're working with. Um, but also just, you know, an innovative uh, spirit to keep pushing to like find new ways to bring joy and um, fulfillment uh, where where it's been lacking in people's lives. So yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, If you wouldn't mind, um, because you mentioned earlier that you had your own struggles with mental health and that kind of led you on the path to wanting to work in that environment and incorporating, um, you know, rec therapy uh, in your work. And so I'm wondering uh, if you could share just a little bit about your own personal experience and like maybe was rec therapy introduced to you during your recovery or was it something that, you know, you found was lacking and that kind of also wanted you to pick up the mantle to, 
to embark on this work? Um, yeah, I, I'm pretty open about uh, my mental health journey. Um, I'm just trying to think of how to kind of best phrase everything. So, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that the, I was thinking about this and one of the first, I guess, major times in my life that I noticed that maybe something wasn't going very well for me was after I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Um, so that was when I was 10 years old. I was in elementary school. Um, and, you know, I was, it was kind of out of nowhere. And no one in my family had diabetes. Um, and so it was just kind of like a major shift for me and something that I didn't know anything about. So my life kind of, you know, changed pretty drastically at that point. Um, and, you know, when dealing with type 1 diabetes, especially when I was diagnosed, there was a lot of like misinformation. Um, and, you know, the people that were helping me, um, like my family, friends, you know, even strangers, like all had opinions on, on how to help me with that. And sometimes some of those comments weren't the most helpful. Um, there was a lot of focus on, on food, on, you know, um, calculating things because I had to take insulin. Um, I felt different from other people because I had to always keep all of my diabetes stuff with me. Um, always had to be testing my blood sugar which was fine, but also when you're 10, 10 years old, you know, and no one else is doing that, it's kind of, it felt kind of alienating. Um, and then, like, some of the, the comments made were intended to be kind and helpful, um, but I heard a lot of things like, you know, should you really be eating that? Um, I don't think you should have that. That's too much sugar, you know, all of those things. And that kind of like got in my head a little bit. Um, I've always <laughs> liked sugar. And, but after somebody was like, oh, well, you can't have sugar. I wanted a lot more sugar. And so um, that's kind of, I think, the starting point of my eating disorder. Um, and so I would, you know, be kind of in trouble if I had sugar. So a lot of times I would hide it. Um, and kind of eat it alone. I had to take insulin for everything that I put in my mouth, which was difficult uh, for me. But uh, I don't know. I guess it, it kind of in eighth grade, I decided to kind of ask for help with the eating disorder stuff. Um, at that point, it was binging. Um, I was binging on sugar mainly um, and kind of covering it up a lot. Um, very secretive uh, behavior. And so I guess uh, I asked for help at that point and it was met with, you know, not a lot of information there either. So um, didn't really get help for it. And then, you know, through high school, things got more difficult. I had a lot of anxiety and perfectionism. I was trying to kind of make up for some of that, like shame that I felt with the eating disorder, I think. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but, um, it kind of all kind of hit a, 
the boiling point, I guess, in college um, when I felt like nobody was really listening and I didn't know how to deal with my emotions and my anxiety of being away from home. Um, so, you know, that's when I kind of had to really focus on mental health. I ended up, um, going to the hospital, doing several PHP programs, which is like a day program. Uh, and then you go home at night type of thing. Um, and then eventually residential, um, ironically at the place that I work now, that's where I went. Mm. Um, and then, you know, the, at the time they did not have recreation therapy there. Um, that started several years after I left. Um, and, you know, I, I found throughout the whole process that poetry was um, something that really helped me. It was something that I felt pretty confident in and it was a good outlet for me. Um, and so I also noticed that if I didn't take time for myself, and I notice it now too, if I don't take time for myself to do something outside of, you know, work or school that I have very little energy to provide, you know, so I, I, I knew that recreation was important for me, but no, I never had like, I never experienced recreation therapy myself. Um, and that kind of, that's why I was so excited when I, I found out about rec therapy because I, I, I knew that it could be really helpful for people. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, um, you bring, you brought up a lot of interesting points and like, obviously we're friends. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm very familiar with your story, but I'm always intrigued about the correlation between getting diagnosed with a physical illness and how that sort of aided in perpetuating um, your mental health struggles. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's something that isn't really talked about because... I think people, there's an assumption with eating disorders that it just sort of develops out of a sense of wanting to be thin or pretty, mm -hmm. um, which is, I guess it's fair to say is the case for many people. Um, but I think a lot of times we don't realize that there are other uh, avenues that can take place in people developing an eating disorder and the misinformation that we receive about our physical health can then turn into this tumultuous like down spiral within our mental mm -hmm. health. Um, and so I guess where I'm going with this is, do you find that the misinformation that you received as a child, is that still prominent? Like, obviously, you still have type 1 diabetes and deal with that on a daily mm -hmm. basis. Um, but do you find that the the information that is being brought out generally, is that shifting? Is that the same yeah. No. Um, 
honestly, it's it's been pretty much constant. Um, it's the main difference now is that I, I know that it's misinformation. <laughs> um, I do my best to kind of, you know, when it's appropriate, kind of educate people on type one. A lot of time, it, I mean, to be fair, it can be confusing when, when somebody said, you know, I say I have diabetes. Um, a lot of times people don't know there's a difference between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And there's, you know, some overlap, but there is kind of a some, some differences. And so, you know, I think that there's just not a lot of education for people. And like, you know, to an extent, why would somebody need to know? <laughs> you know, if it's not affecting them directly in some way. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely still get comments about things um, uh, kind of insinuating that I need to, or even directly saying that I need to lose weight, I need to eat healthier, I need to exercise, and that's going to make the diabetes go away. I'm like, mm, it doesn't work that way. Um, and now I'm able to kind of shrug it off a little bit more, but, you know, kind of like what I said before, when you're 10, 11 years old, 10 and 11 year old girl, even, especially, um, the, the comments that kind of relate to, um, image can be really overwhelming and, you know, a 10 and 11, I feel like most people aren't able to navigate that very well um and then also obviously when when something's being restricted from you i don't know that was kind of my way of rebelling also as a kid so yeah i, I think diabetes there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of times i think that affects a lot of different aspects actually i was reading about this and i don't remember the exact uh statistic but um, girls especially, but also guys, um, when they are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a kid, their, their chance of developing an eating disorder, any kind of eating disorder, is significantly higher than a typical, you know, kid, which I thought was really interesting, and it makes a lot of sense to me um, with all of the focus around food, carbohydrates, people telling you you need to lose weight, all of that. So it can manifest in a lot of different ways. But I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely makes sense. It's something that's overlooked because it's so uh, simple, I think, <laughs> when you think about it. Um, but like you said, if if someone isn't being directly impacted by it, it's easy to just sort of not think about it or think to educate yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I think since like meeting you and knowing you, I have definitely started to notice a lot more of the stigmas with diabetes, regardless mm -hmm. of the type. And um, I've, I've often been like disturbed by <laughs> um the things that people say and how they respond. And I think back to, you know, our conversations about how those comments, you know, fuel, had, had fueled your um, eating disorder. And um, 
a lot of times I, I notice that people say those things in the presence of young, impressionable mm-hmm. minds. Um, and it's so, uh, it's alarming to realize how prominent it is in our society. And we're just so, um, we're not mindful about it, like you were saying, because for a lot of people, it just, it just doesn't impact them. So they're not thinking about how their words or actions are actually influencing people's thought process and behaviors. Um, So I'm, you know, what can, like, what can we do as a, as a society, you know, to just be better, (laughs) I guess. I don't know. Um, (laughs) That's a great question. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think it is about kind of being, being mindful about what we're saying, um, how we're saying it. Um, I, I don't think that most, at least, if, you know, anybody that was saying those things was saying it maliciously. Um, I think just more, you know, general education, at least, about different, you know, either mental or physical illnesses can be really helpful in kind of eliminating or lessening some of those comments that are made. I think um, more... Uh, I don't know what the word is, but like more, uh, aggressive, uh, assistance for kids, especially, but also young adults or adults with type one diabetes, I think providing them with more comprehensive services, um, can be really helpful in battling those challenges that are not addressed. Um, I think that can be a really good, thing to help as well. Um, because I mean, you're going to come across people, whether they're educated on diabetes or not, that are going to say things and, you know, building resiliency and kind of learning mental health, things that can help mental health as a kid would have been really helpful. You know, after being diagnosed, I had a lot of education on how much insulin to take and how, you know, how often to test my blood sugar, but I had zero education on how it might impact my mental health. And I think that that could have been really helpful for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what you mentioned, like more aggressive, um, comprehensive education and services. Do you think that that is influenced by the current state of our, you know, healthcare system, which, you know, is a, that's a very touchy yet hot button issue right now is how, you know, the healthcare system impacts people's accessibility to get the help that they need, whether it's physical or mental Mm -hmm. or both. Um, Are you finding that, like, where, where are you seeing some of the challenges, like, in your personal health journey but also like even with where you work you know because there's all the 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 bureaucracy of it all because in a perfect world you know you show up and you you do your thing and you're you know the people you work with get better and 
you know, all is well. But I think you and I both know it's not always as simple as that because, you know, people don't, a lot of people don't have access to, to get that help because of, you know, money. (laughs) A lot to do with money, I think, which is sad. Um, Like you said, it, you know, in a perfect world, that would not be a barrier to receiving health care of any kind. Um, but unfortunately, that is the reality for most people, I think, you know, at least in America. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think that most people have access to the health care that they need, um, or at least to the extent that they need. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty opinionated on on this topic um but you know i work like i said in the residential treatment center and it makes me very angry and very sad sometimes because i see you know these residents who really do want to get better and they want help and they want skills and insurance companies come in and they're like well we're gonna approve three days for you and then we're gonna cut you from insurance like what (laughs) that's not going to do anything. And it's sad. Or they're met with, um, and this is said, said to the residents, oh, you're not sick enough to receive care. You're not thin enough to get eating disorder treatment. All of those things. And, um, you know, I think that really impacts, not only it makes um, their mental health conditions sometimes worse, um, but it's certainly a lot of times not really making it better or not they're not given the opportunity to make changes. Um, and I think that's gotten worse recently um, when I was in residential care. Um, I was approved somehow <laughs> for about three months of, of care and that was life-changing. Um, it was really important for me to be there that long. Um, but now it's very rare that people are getting approved for that long. Um, so I don't know if it's an insurance company thing or if it's like a political thing, but I, I don't think that people are able to get that health care that they need. What's the, in your observation, like ballpark it, like the average amount of time that someone could get approved through their insurance to, to stay in, um, in where you so are? So the adolescents tend to be approved for more time, um, which is good. I think with adolescents, the typical length of stay is about six to eight weeks, which is great. Still, when you're thinking about these disorders that have begun and have been going on for 10 plus years, six to eight weeks seems like a lot, but it's really not. Um, And then the adults get less than that, usually like three to six weeks at most. Um, Of course, there's some outliers and people who stay for months, um, but it's not the typical at all. And like, because I would imagine if someone was like self-paying, you know, with no insurance backing, you know, I would imagine that being there is very expensive (laughs) um which you know is common and typical and warranted um but even with 
insurance sometimes it can be expensive i guess if someone wanted to extend Mm -hmm. their stay beyond what the insurance is willing to cover Mm -hmm. you know are you finding that uh, most of your residents have some sort of financial support whether that be through insurance or family yeah i think um or does it vary um i think it's i mean the majority of people have insurance or somebody to help them uh, financially. Um, That being said, at least at the place that I am, um, you have to be very wealthy um, if you want to self-pay or, you know, if if family is going to be paying for you. So I don't know. Um, I think that it's, it's hard because right. Like the price, like you said, is warranted. Um, for the the stay and the care that they're getting, um, and at the same time, like if if it's not being paid for by somebody, they're just not going to have the opportunity to get that care. There's, I mean, there's probably mm-hmm. like you know cheaper options, but <laughs> at the same time, you know, either way, it's very difficult to to get that care if you're not wealthy. Yeah. Um, Yeah, for sure. Or even the cheaper options probably might not be equipped with the same quality Mm -hmm. of care. Uh, If I, I, I hesitate to even use that word, Um, but you know, if, if, if a place is funded well, you can provide so many options and you know bring in the best of the best people to to aid in their care uh versus like a place that may not be funded as well and then you're just kind of you're kind of limited in what you can actually provide to the people um so it is something that you know people need to be aware of um and like navigating or or being aware that everybody has different um means and that can that can truly impact uh people getting the help that they need because the reality is is that um mental health issues are not bias to your socioeconomic status um it impacts it impacts you whether you're rich poor middle class um you know whether you're black white uh woman man whatever um it's it's a universal issue yet the solutions aren't always universal because your statuses or privileges can sometimes inform who gets who gets the help and who gets it first um so yeah but i mean you do what you can exactly and (laughs) yeah yeah um so switching gears um i wanted to talk a little bit about your decision to pursue a master's in social work and like what that looks like for you and how that is 
potentially changing the trajectory of your career, I guess. (laughs) Um, So I've, yeah, like you said, I made the decision to go on for my master's in social work. Um, And it's going to take me some time because I'm attempting to work full time um, while also doing school. So at the moment I'm doing one class at a time. Um, but I'm very excited about being in, uh, in the social work program because, um, I think it will kind of expand my knowledge and my opportunities to help people. Um, I was kind of going back and forth on, on what I wanted to pursue my master's in, um, between kind of counseling and social work. And there's a lot of overlap there. Um, But the reason I chose social work um, was because I felt like it was a more comprehensive and, you know, was able to look at at the um, issues with, you know, a larger perspective, I guess, Um, looking at society as a whole and how that fits in with, you know, each individual. Um, I think that Eventually, I want to kind of, I want to be a clinical social worker, which just means that I would be providing more like talk therapy um, to, to people and kind of helping to connect them with different resources, um, helping them to work through some of the things that bring them to me. <laughs> um, and I think that it will be really helpful for me to, you know, still have that recreation therapy background because I think it's um, not as common to have a social worker with that background. So um, I'm excited to work towards towards that goal, and I want to have my own private practice someday. So it's exciting to think about. Yeah, absolutely. I think. It makes total sense, Uh at least to me, (laughs) that you would you would go that path. And um, yeah, like you said, it's rare for someone to have that background in rec therapy. And I think you have the potential to sort of, you know, revolutionize like how we do. How we Mm -hmm. do what you do, you know, (laughs) Um, to sort of combine many different tools to create safer and innovative spaces for people to be more informed about their their mental health journey and also you know working through recovery if applicable and yeah breaking down some of the stigmas too because I know we talked a lot about the stigma with like uh like diabetes but I like you and I both know that there's a lot of stigma within mental health as well and um are you finding that uh what's your take on that like is it are you finding that the stigmas are dissipating or are they still there where are we with that Hmm. um I, I think I think it's a lot of things. I think that there's um, positives and negatives in the field of mental health right now. I think there is a little bit more visibility for people with 
mental health issues. Um, and at the same time, of course, there's, there's still a lot of stigma attached. Um, I think that, you know, there's stigma in receiving mental health care sometimes, um, or feeling that there needs to be a certain mental health diagnosis, or you need to be, um, you know, not being able to function before you receive any kind of health or mental health care. Um, I think there's, you know, this thought that if you have a mental illness that, um, I don't know, there, I mean, that something's wrong with you, um, that you're just not strong enough to handle the difficulties of life when that's really not the case. Um, it, as you know, uh, you know, um, mental mm -hmm. illness is just as much of a um, physical illness as, you know, diabetes. I, I would, if I didn't take care of my diabetes, I would die. Um, and very similarly for myself and for, you know, a lot of other people, if I don't take care of my mental health, I could also die. <laughs> so I think it's, it's important that mm -hmm. it becomes more normalized to, to get that help and that support before we get to a point where um, someone is not able to function and is doing very risky behaviors due to not having that support or not having the education and, and the know-how of getting that support. Yeah. So being like more proactive yes, instead definitely. of reactive. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I definitely think that's something that I've been really focused on, particularly this year, is trying to find ways to address something before it gets too right, out of control. Right. <laughs> um, and I'm noticing, well, I'm noticing that in Western medicine in general, we're very reactive, you know, like we we wait uh like even when you go to the doctor sometimes you know and i kind of get it because it kind of coincides with the like money yeah. and insurance thing where you go to the doctor and you're like i am you know i'm complaining of this and the doctor may be hesitant to run certain tests you know because oh well it could be nothing and you might be paying thousands of dollars <laughs> for nothing <laughs> Um, but then, but then we wait until like the symptoms get worse before we decide to actually intervene and see what's going on. Um, and then it gets harder to bounce yeah. back, you know, whereas if we had, like you said, the know-how and the education and the awareness beforehand when things come up we can sort of nip that in the bud yeah. quicker and be able to move on yeah because uh, I, I mean i think that <laughs> uh, mental health is is still a taboo subject you know when you think about even like elementary middle school high school um they have a health class um we you talk about you know mm -hmm. Um, different aspects of health. And when I think back to at least my schooling, mental health, maybe like for a couple days we talked about it and then we moved on. Um, I think that that needs to be a part of, you know, the education system. I think that 
mental health, like, I just read about the, you know, the mental health first aid, which I think is a brilliant idea. Um, I don't know. I think you know more about it, but yeah. Yeah. Um, being able to kind of navigate that is important. Talking to kids when they're little about mental health and how that's a normal thing. And, you know, it's not a scary thing to feel depressed. I think that's huge. You know, if, if a kid's like, oh, you know, I'm having these scary thoughts, uh, most of the time it's met with like, oh, you know, everything's okay. Everything's okay. And it's like, well, it, it's not okay. And why can't we just kind of accept that it's not okay? Um, I don't know. I just, I think that we're kind of, as a society, failing to address what we need to address. I mean, and like we said, if we wait and we're not proactive, it can be a lot worse. Like if you think about the eating disorder thing that I just talked about in eighth grade, I I knew something was wrong and it was an eating disorder and it was not addressed. And then when I brought it up again in high school, again, it was seen as like, well, you're just using this as an excuse to continue eating, which not the most helpful. Um, in college, I didn't know yeah. how to ask for help or I didn't feel like it was believable. Um, and that was part of the reason why I kind of made more risky decisions when it came to um, eating. I would restrict, I would, you know, purge, I would also like self-harm. Um, and part of that was I just didn't know how to deal with things. And I think it was a way to kind of reach out for help. Um, people weren't believing me when I was binging. So, you know, maybe they would take me seriously with all these other things, which then obviously snowballed and then it wasn't really, I don't know. It's just like that. I feel like some of that at least could have been prevented or like worked through at an earlier point. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, even with my own journey with mental health, um, I think the people around me, they did the best they could (laughs) with the information that they had. But um, like you said, making it normalized to talk about from a young age, even for people who aren't struggling, but may be put in a position where they are the support system Um, for someone else because I often think about you know relationships friendships that have been tarnished um, not because they are a bad person Mm -hmm. or I'm a bad person but because we lacked the knowledge on how to you know be supportive to our friends who are struggling and how to be how to still show up as a friend when you're struggling. Um, You know, it's, it's even things like that with how we relate to one another. And I often think about, Oh, how much pain could have been avoided, you know, not just for me, but for other people, you know, if we had had the, the education and the knowledge about what was going on. Um, with me and so Mm -hmm. many other people. Um, And even like me, even though I have my 
my own history, you know, it's everybody has their own story and their own struggles. And even I have to take a step back and, you know, educate myself uh, about what's going on with my friends and how to best support them because what works for me might not work for them. Um, I think that's something that I, I value about our friendship is because, you know, like I don't have an eating disorder and, you know, it being your friend and, uh, being around you, it, you know, opened my eyes to like, Oh, where are Mm -hmm. my blind spots? You know, how, how am I not being, supportive to people who might be struggling with something like that and how am I like uh contributing to the stigmas you know um even though like I can relate in the sense of I know what it is to struggle with something that is taboo and can induce a lot of shame but at the same time there's there's unique challenges to that that I don't that I'll never know you know or fully understand and I think um like even recognizing Mm -hmm. privilege because like I mean privilege is such a buzzword and I think a lot of people think when you talk about privilege you're just talking about like identities like race or gender or something like that but I think uh it's important for people to recognize that even um, you have privilege with um, the things that you don't have to deal with. So just the me acknowledging my privilege, like when we go out to eat, like I'm not probably going through the same thought process that you are, you know, when we sit down to have a meal. Like for me, it's just, we're having a meal. And for you, it might be like a, you know, we got to have to do take these steps to to have a healthy relationship okay. with food, you know. Um, and then, you know, even with me, like having bipolar disorder, like, you know, there are just things that I have to do steps that I have to do that other people don't, you know, in order to like have a right. functional day. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, um, and so, yeah, I think recognizing our privileges and being more empathetic to people and their process is probably like a big thing with dismantling um, stigma and making sure people feel safe to voice their concerns and get the help that they Definitely. want and need. Yeah. So, yeah. I think asking questions. Yeah is you know goes along with that and I think that that's something that a lot of people don't do either because they um just don't know if it's okay to ask um or they just kind of don't think Mm -hmm. to um and and that's one of the main differences that I notice in our friendship versus others is that um I think we both make it a priority to learn about each other's experiences, knowing that, you know, I'm never going to have the same experiences that you are and vice versa. Um, It's something that, you know, we can't necessarily understand personally, um, but something that we care enough about the other person that we 
you know, learn as much as we can. And we ask questions and mm-hmm. answer honestly. And um, I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I would say the biggest takeaway uh, with the friendship aspect is, you know, learning how to be, how, learning how to show yeah. up for your friends um that's I think that's the biggest thing and like your family members as well um but even like relaying it to the professional setting um because I think for me that's where the biggest taboo is showing up in my life is how to navigate having those conversations Mm -hmm. in the workplace um because you know there is that element of well if I if I had the flu, you know, it would just be like, Hey, I have the flu. I can't come into work today. Um, (laughs) And people would be like, Oh yeah, take care of yourself. No questions asked, you know? Um, Whereas, you know, when you're having like some sort of struggle with your mental health, it's kind of like, Oh, how do I bring this up? How do I disclose information without it coming off? Like, you know, not believable, like you said, or, um, you know, you don't want to like demonize yourself because there's still that persona of like, oh, if you have a mental illness, then, you know, you're crazy or there's something wrong with you or you're not capable of doing your job or being functional. Um, so like I mean do you obviously you work in the mental health field so there are there's a probably a better (laughs) understanding of that but like even still I know sometimes people no matter where they work there's still like that challenge of you know being transparent about their struggles and what they need like do you find that you're place of work is supportive and like what Um, you need like (laughs) you know you'd think that it would be easier um working in mental health with that aspect and i i guess you know to an extent it probably is um i definitely still i i have a hard time and i don't know if it's because of you know my own stuff or what, but, um, I definitely still really struggle with voicing, um, at work that, you know, I'm, I'm needing support in different ways because I think there's also this, there's still this, you know, idea of like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give you some time and space, but we're also, not going to give you as many responsibilities, you know, or we're, we're not going to trust you as much with, <laughs> some of these other things, which, you know, I don't know, like, I think there's still some assumptions that are being made um, that I don't want to be made. I don't know. Um, I I think that there's support in a way of like, okay, well, we know that this job is very difficult emotionally. And, you know, I think they try to provide time and space to talk about things. Um, 
but you know if i'm i'm needing i mean i with my um mental health sometimes i feel like i do need a mental health day um uh you know from from work and i don't feel comfortable voicing that and it's it's kind of sad because you know we should be able to feel comfortable enough to ask for that kind of support i don't know if that answered your question but absolutely Oh, yeah, it does. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it does. I can imagine. Yeah, because I think there's this assumption that um, just because someone works in like the field of mental health that uh, well, one, like especially with therapists, like we make the assumption that therapists are like these like gods and goddesses that are like made of steel and they like manage their own issues very well um when i was listening to um a podcast where they were interviewing a a psychotherapist and he was saying like every therapist should have a therapist (laughs) um yeah because especially because like you're you know dealing with a lot of people's um struggles and there's a lot of darkness you know in what you do and so uh even if you don't have like a clinical diagnosis or of anything it's important to like keep your mental health in check because you're carrying a lot of the weight of other people's uh trauma and um the different things that they deal with so but i i also like I know people who work in the field of mental health and yet still I'm like, I'm always surprised when they like say something or do something that's like, ah, that's like problematic. Don't you think? (laughs) And it's, it's just a reminder that like, none of us are perfect. And even those of us that are like advocates for mental health or working in the field, in whatever capacity like we still have work to do as well in ensuring that you know we're not contributing to the problem (laughs) 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 so yeah I always find that interesting but I guess like I would it's interesting what you say like even though you're given time and space you still feel uncomfortable voicing like I need a mental health day and probably resorting to uh, those tactics of like, let me come up with some other excuse as to why I need to not come in, (laughs) which, yeah, which I, I will admit I have done several times, especially when I was working in retail, like I never felt comfortable, you know, disclosing anything mental health related so it was like oh i'm sick or oh my car won't start or you know some bs (laughs) reason and like (laughs) i don't know eventually like hopefully we get to a point where no matter where you work or what you do there's support you know available and we can be a little more transparent in what's going on with us, even those of us that aren't clinically diagnosed with something because, you know, life situations come up that can impact our mental health and, you know, 
it's not the support isn't just for us you know crazies uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, I know. it's for you all too it's for you all too oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I can say that because I <laughs> yeah well um I guess we can wrap up like any any like final like thoughts or like something that our listeners can take away like about rec therapy like um we usually do like a shameless plug do you want to like plug any resources or anything that people can look more into if they're interested in learning more about rec therapy or anything um of the sure sort? um well i mean i think that if if you know someone's interested in learning more about recreation therapy there are you know kind of a lot of resources online um a good place i think to learn more would be it's called atra you know it'll it'll give you more information and um different places that you can learn more um i think it's something that a lot of people don't know about and could be really great to learn about i think you know for people who are entering college or thinking about different majors, it's one that most people don't know about. Um, so, um, you know, kind of looking into that as a possible career choice. Um, I think that incorporating it as part of like career days could be really cool. Um, I don't know how we would go about doing that, but <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, and we'll um, link the the resources you mentioned okay. in the show notes so listeners can, like, look more into that. And um, also, like, I'll go ahead and, like, shameless plug it since, like, we <laughs> went to the same school. I want to shameless plug Illinois State University because they have a great uh, therapeutic yes, rec program um which you know you are a proud alum of and um i got i had the privilege to meet um one of your yes professors that one day um yeah and i like recently saw on facebook or something you know i think the program does like a some type of day where they invite the students to, you know, uh, engage in yeah. like different sports activities and uh, that are like accessible to different types of bodies and people with disabilities and things like that. And I saw that she was like on like a local like news station and she was talking about <laughs> it and I was like, hey, I know her. <laughs> Um, and so it was, yeah, I, it was like really cool to see that, um, the program was like getting more visibility and that things were like expanding. So if any of our listeners are thinking of pursuing, uh, any type of recreation therapy or just, you know, wanting to know more, I would definitely look into Illinois state if that's, you know, on your radar. I'm sure there are other colleges and universities that, offer similar programs but you know i'm, I'm biased <laughs> to the redbirds so <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Kathy, for, you know, talking with me. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I always learn so much from you and you're great. You're awesome. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're awesome too. Thank you. I'm glad we, we got the chance. Yes. I, um, yeah, I, when I started this podcast with Alicia, we talked about like what we could incorporate with mental health. You know, I knew, I knew off the bat, I was like, I definitely want Kathy to be on the show because <laughs> I like, I wanted to bring visibility to what you do because, you know, there are a lot of podcasts that talk about mental health. And I feel like it's always like, let's talk about depression and anxiety. And not that those things aren't important, but I kind of, I'm glad that I'm able to incorporate people that can speak to the solutions instead of just like harping on the problems. So yeah, um, I'm really, yeah. I'm grateful. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise. And if I had um, billions of dollars, I would pay you every time. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. I'm yes. just kidding. <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe I will, we'll set up some type of crowdsourcing. (laughs) Hey, hey people, pay your therapist. Okay. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Continue the conversation with us. Develop a community with other misfits and mystics like us and get your latest updates on shameless plugs and other news by following us on social media. We are on Instagram at Misfits and Mystics Pod, Twitter at Misfits Mystics, and we also have a Facebook page that you can like and share. Want to reach us directly? Shoot us an email at misfitsandmysticspod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And with your permission, we might give you a shout out on future episodes. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever streaming service you're using to stay up to date on newest episodes being released. Leave us a review on iTunes to help us gain more visibility. Plus, we appreciate the feedback.